Uh, I know that some in our audience know the finer points of hockey. The Chris Johnston Show. We are your friends. The biggest stories bringing you inside the game. What did you hear? The Chris Johnston Show. What is going on? Here's Chris with your host, Julian McKenzie. Part of the game. Big Money CJ, it is time for one of my favorite sporting events of the year. One of my favorite times of the year. The Masters. The, uh great golf tournament as it is that's like the major i care about the most i want to see your jim nance voice it's like hello friends welcome hello, back friends. here to augusta national that's we've good- got a compelling tournament brewing tiger woods <laughs> is resurgent he is making a charge on the back nine why the do you patrons- look so <laughs> why do you look so fierce you do like hey everyone i'm jim nance like why, why why do you why do you look like intimidated you keep getting closer and closer to the camera when you do it it's because I'm trying to like lean into the feel. I don't know. I mean, we don't see Jim Nance when he does it. That's what, that's how I assume how it, that's the posture he adopts while he's giving us the soothing sounds of the, the weekend of the Masters. I'm with you though. In all seriousness, I've uh, I've loved the Masters since I was a little kid, so I never miss it. Um, the fact that Tiger Woods is playing this week is particularly close to my heart. I've, I've been a Tiger fan since I was a teenager. I say to producer Nick. Like what other sport could you love someone, an athlete when they were a teenager and they're still a competitive athlete as you get to my age. So that's, that's actually in itself pretty cool to be able to follow someone's career in life that way. And, you know, given the, given the, the severity of the car accident he was in a year ago, just to see him back playing is going to be really cool. So I'm uh, I'm Jack for the weekend. Don't call me on Sunday. And uh, hopefully we're talking about Tiger winning some miracle tournament on Monday when we do the pot again. I, I, can you think of any athlete? in any other sport who we have seen rise as a young man with the weight of the world on his shoulders only to crumble in some ways at some of the weight of those expectations more or less in his personal life as opposed to on the golf course battle all those injuries battle other personal demons and still be at a point where whenever we see him competing he is with no with no disrespect to all the other golfers the only other the the thing the person to watch like i can't think of anyone i mean maybe there's not the list isn't that long but tiger woods is such a unique character to study he can go through anything that he's gone through in his life and when it comes time for him to be in a tournament if he's there if he's wearing red it is appointment viewing i I can't think of too many other people like that in our human history not in present times. There's no one as dramatic. I mean, this guy was on TV when he was two years old on the Mike Douglas show because he was a prodigy at two. Like he, you know, it, it's, it's, it depends how far back you want to go. You know, his father was a very powerful figure in his life. Uh, his dad died of cancer and then he wins the, the first tournament, uh, the major he played to the British Open. I think it was 2006. And he breaks down after he makes the final putt. This one's for pops. I remember yeah, that. He wins the, the, it was at the 08 US Open on basically a broken leg. He's hobbling around. You know, even so many of those injuries, you know, it's later come out in stories that have been done are due to the fact he trained like a Marine. He trained, did crazy runs in, in basically army boots and, and things that he didn't really necessarily have to do physically to be great at golf. But, you know, he pushed himself to such a degree. I mean, there's, there's so much there. You know, we don't have to get into all the stuff of his marriage breaking down, but, you know, the fact that he he really wasn't in golf for many years and he wins the Masters in 2019, you know, now this car accident where it nearly had his leg amputated, 
it appears that his son Charlie is is on the way potentially to being a, a great golfer himself. Although you know he's still a kid, we'll see how his life turns out. But it, it's just there's so much there, and obviously it's a it's a life that's been lived almost entirely in the public spotlight because when he was a really young kid, he was identified early as something special. And um, you know he's a, he's a very compelling character for me. I, I just think what I've always loved about him, it's pretty clear his mind is at a different level than most average people, most even the other the guys he competes against, you know, when he was in his absolute prime, he had you beat before the, the day started just mentally. And, you know, I think it's his mind that's even as sort of the physical things are breaking down, obviously he's, he's getting older too, and it becomes tougher to, to compete. Um, his mind could keep him in and make him be in the event. You know, I certainly don't expect him to win or anything like that, but you can never rule it out because of just how dramatic his, his life and his career have been. Yeah, like the last Masters he won, I think like 2019. Like, do you do you remember watching that? Do you remember do you remember how amazing that was for everyone? It was like we just want to see him win one more major, and and just the relief at the end of it all, seeing him celebrate. Like, that's the Tiger we all want to see. We want we just we all want to see that glimpse of of talent and brilliance just one more time. That's where we're at with Tiger Woods now. Damn right, I remember it. You know, I, I actually was flying home from Boston. It was a Leafs Bruins series. I think it might have been game five was played the night before the Saturday night in Boston. I switched my flight to like a 4 a.m. flight, like basically didn't sleep, went straight to Logan and, and flew home. And the, the fourth round of that that day, they were worried about rain. So everyone, everything was moved up. The tee times were early. And I just watched the whole thing, like every shot. It was unbelievable. I was probably bawling in my living room. Uh, I've been such a Tiger fan. Honestly, like I, I love them. Um, it goes way back. He, he played in the U.S. Amateur when he was when he was uh, in college. He won three in a row. He was the only one who's ever won three in a row after winning three U.S. Juniors. And I was at my golf course as a kid, and we were we were betting with like the older members on on this match he had. I think the guy he played was named Steve Scott, and he was down in that match. And I bet on him like a toonie, and I won like twelve bucks. And he had me hooked from that point on because he came back and won. It was pretty dramatic. Um, and that was when I was like thirteen or something, fourteen. So wow. I, I've been following his career for a long time. I actually literally had a Tiger Woods poster on my childhood bedroom wall. Wow. So, um, yeah. So I've, I've been a, a devout fan for a long time. And, and so, yeah, like it was a huge deal to see him win then. And honestly, now just to see him compete, like I, I don't want to get too greedy and say like, just to see him play is going to be cool. And, and I hope he can get in the other majors and, you know, if there's anywhere that he could find a way to, to compete, I think it's Augusta national just because of, you know, how much he knows the place. And I think that that's a real advantage there versus some other golf courses, but it's also extremely hilly. I actually covered three masters. Mm -hmm. um, I, I covered a bunch of golf early in my career when I worked at the Canadian press and went down three times. So, you know, which is really neat in itself, but, but to, you don't get the impression on TV about how up and down it is. And just given that one of his legs was crunched in a car accident, it's actually the, the biggest barrier to him winning is probably walking up and down those Hills for four days um, you know, my, just the fatigue and, and, you know, staying in, it's going to be a real challenge for him. It absolutely will, but he feels he could win it. And I mean, we expect nothing less from Tiger Woods, just an absolute legend. You don't need us to list off all of his accomplishments. And I understand we're not a golf podcast, but, uh, we both like the masters and we both like Tiger Woods. I have a, uh, like a portrait of, of Tiger in my hallway. In, oh, uh, cool. in my spot so yeah like i big big fan of tiger still love the shot in the 05 masters i think at 16 
Uh, oh, yeah. That's the greatest, as far as I'm concerned, the greatest Nike ad of all time. Just seeing the ball just spin towards the hole, just seeing the swoosh on the ball hold for a second before it falls into the cup. I mean, you can't, that's, there's no better promo you could do if you're Nike, as far as I'm concerned. I, Tiger I could Woods very much for that one too, man. I was living in London, England at that time man. In, my, in my apartment on Archway Road on the couch. It was, you know, five hours ahead. So it was like almost midnight. And I literally got off the couch screaming. Like I was so pumped when that went in. Um, Man. Like it's crazy. And then I actually covered, that was that year, the, the British Open went to St. Andrews and I went to St. Andrews and covered it because I was living over in Europe and Tiger won that event. It was Jack Nicholas's last major and, and Tiger won the tournament and I got to follow him around. And it was so cool. Um, you know, you know what's neat? This is, we're way off the, but whatever. So Jack Nicholas's okay. last Jack Nicholas's last ever major, they actually put his face on the, the five pound note in Britain. And so like they were giving those out that were whatever you had to buy them that week. And, and on the last hole of the Friday, he, he makes like a, a he, you know, it's a short par four, an 18th hole. All of the town is there. Like that's the cool thing about that course is that it's right in the town. So like it's, it's filled with all the people in the stands, but like, like the streets were lined and he makes this putt and I swear for birdie like his last ever hole in a major and like the grounds are shaking. And then he comes into the press room and he says, I knew the hole would move wherever I hit it. Like, <laughs> wow. What a legend. And this is, have I told a story in the pod? Cause I know I'm prone to repeat things. Uh, do you recall this at all? Not really. Okay. So then all the journalists, when they, when they wrapped up his press conference or not all of them, but a lot of them lined up and got their press passes signed by Jack Nicholas but I was really young and I, you know, it was ingrained in me that you don't do that. And so I didn't do it as either too proud or just didn't want to look like a, a fan, but it, it's actually one small regret professionally. It would be just cool to have that, that, you know, sign because I've covered so many events around the world since and so many big moments, but that was just, that was one of the neatest things I was ever there for. Um, but I was too young and too proud to, to get in line and get my, my, my past signed by it's kind of funny, you know, you go through journalism school, I believe we've both gone through journalism school before going to CP and all these other places, and you learn all these core rules, you know, don't take photos or interview subjects or get like inter- or autographs or whatever, and then like you end up in the field and you're just like, you, you think about it, like I, I know, like I can think of a bunch of stuff uh, where I would came close to breaking those rules, those unwritten rules or whatever, but then uh, I said, you know what? professionalism but that i don't think anyone would have blamed you if you got that autograph no and it's weird i just you have to prove yourself first of all and, and i hadn't proven myself at that point and you know secondly like it, i wouldn't even occur to me to do it now i mean i've been to 15 or 16 stanley cups in a row in the olympics like you know and obviously i now you come to know people in hockey like wouldn't even think like it wouldn't even cross my mind to do it but like jack nicholas was a legend and it was just such a legendary moment and um, you know, maybe the rules are different there. I, I don't know. Or maybe it's just like all these old, old time, you know, really veteran reporters are just, re- just respected. Like that was something special with that moment. Um, but anyway, it's just, just a cool story in my memory. And I just love that quote. I knew the whole move wherever I hit it. And I've actually, you know, cause sometimes time fades your memory or whatever. I've actually went back and looked and like, you can, you can find that, um, that quote. So that's not even a invented or, or twisted story. Yeah, and so I hope the whole moves wherever Tiger puts it this week and he can have a legendary moment. I hope so too. So it's time for us to talk about hockey because that's what we normally talk about on the Chris Johnston show. That's uh, our areas of expertise, a little bit more so on your side. I want your thoughts on Tim Stutzla 
of the Ottawa Senators, who uh, has now, you know, built up a reputation as a diver. You may not have even been watching uh, the Senators-Canadians game where uh, he uh, tried to endear himself to the Montreal Canadiens because you were probably busy watching the Toronto Maple Leafs blow a 5-1 lead to the Florida Panthers. So I completely understand if you did not watch Tim Stutzla earlier this week. Maybe you caught Brendan Gallagher speaking about Tim Stutzla after the fact and his uh, reputation for diving. Ian Mendez, we shouted him out a couple weeks ago. He also wrote a great column about the whole situation. CJ, I'd love to know from your perspective and in talking to other people, what are your impressions of Tim Stutzla when it comes to drawing penalties and diving? Well, what I see is a guy is getting under an opponent's skin. You know, I, look, Brendan Gallagher, I respect his opinion. You couldn't miss his quote if you were anywhere no. on social media and you're into hockey. I mean, it, it was I saw the quote before I saw the the hit with with Suzuki um, that that I think incited it. Uh, although obviously he was referencing other things he's seen, but you know Stutzla, I, I don't I don't get the feeling like I, I think it's it's just one of these things. I I think that he is getting under the skin of his opponents, and sure, good for Brendan Gallagher for calling him out. I think it, it now adds a little bit more hype into the next game and the next game and the next game. But you know I I hadn't really heard that as a huge reputation of his. And so I, I just see it as kind of one of these flashpoint moments that, um, you know, we'll, we'll keep revisiting in media. It gives us some nice little fabric and tapestry to talk about the next Senators Canadians game. But, you know, I don't see it as a major problem or as something that, um, that the Senators need to sit him down and figure out. I, I think that he plays hard and, and, you know, he's still a good young player finding his way in the league in, in a lot of ways. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't see any real big problem with his game. It's just, you know, he's, he's, he's pissing the other team off and let's face it. That's part of his job too. Can I also just add something here? And this is just me not asking a question. This is me just putting my opinion on here. I cannot stand it whenever people see stuff like that and say, Oh, they learned that from soccer newsflash hockey players dive too. And they use it as a tactic, just like soccer players do. And hockey is supposed to be this tougher sport than soccer where that happens. It happens in hockey and you can go through a laundry list of examples in the men's game in particular, where this happens. So stop saying it's the whole soccer thing, whatever. It, it happens in hockey, it, whatever it is, whether you think it's a tactic or whether there's a reason for them doing it, it just happens in the sport. You don't have to liken it to some other sport that way more people like uh, to make your point that you don't like diving. What do you think undertones that. of that in Gallagher's comments? Like, is he, is it, is he kind of calling out the fact Stutzel is German and obviously it's a big soccer. No, question. no, 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 no. I don't think I, in, in Brendan Gallagher's case, no, I do not think he is doing any of that. I think he's just trying to say that he dives, but there are other people who will uh, not even, not Brendan Gallagher, just to be clear, who will just make that comment that like, oh man, they learned it from soccer or whatever. And like, I, I, that just annoys me. And that's something that well precedes Tim Stutzla. And that's something that's, that's been around for, for years when it comes to hockey. I, I hate that opinion and I hate that thinking. And I think it's just stupid, but no, I don't think Brennan Gallagher was saying anything else beyond the fact that he thinks he essentially is a diver and he's had built up this reputation and uh dude needs to quote unquote smarten up. In well, this look, the NHL gives out diving fines, you know, for players that are flagged for, malicious dives and to my knowledge Stutzla's never received one 
Uh, so that's that's a pretty good indication right there. I mean, we saw earlier the season, Michael Bunting got one, for example, the Leafs. He's He's been drawing a lot of penalties. He's not the biggest guy. He's definitely an agitator. And part of his role is, is again, getting under the skin of opponents and, and getting the Leafs on the power play. I mean, there's a tactical reason to do this. I'm not personally advocating for diving, but much like in soccer, you, you can give your team an advantage if you do it at the right time. And so, you know, I get why it would piss you off if you're an opponent or even if you're a fan of the other team and you see the replay and you're like, oh, man. But, like, there's that's, that's part of the game, too. Uh, it's, it's maybe not the part of the game that we're ever going to celebrate, but it's something that happens to your point, Julian. And so I'm with you. It's certainly not unique to, to soccer or, or whatever. You're, you're trying to operate in the gray of the rules to tilt the, the game's advantage your way. And so that's, that's a tactic. Did you see that list of uh, net penalty difference or net penalties drawn? Uh, like there's like a top five list uh, that has Nathan McKinnon fifth in terms of net penalties drawn Kuro Kaprizov at four, Elias Patterson at three, Stutzla is second. Can you guess who is number one? So I mentioned those four guys. Can is you it guess for this season? For this season. I'm going to guess Michael Bunting. It's not Michael Bunting. Uh, hmm. The only other guy who has drawn more penalties, uh, well, at least according to the chart in terms of net penalties, the only other guy who has drawn more than Tim Stutzla is Connor McDavid. He's the only other guy who has drawn more. Wow, I remember we were talking a year ago how McDavid doesn't draw any penalties. He didn't draw any in that playoff series against Winnipeg last year. Um, you know, and he should. Look, I'm not saying that uh, there might be some course correction there by the referees in, in the sense that, let's face it, given how much of a rush player he is, how dangerous he is, how, how often he has a puck, I mean, it's just natural to think he's going to be impeded illegally uh, as teams try to keep him off the board. But that's pretty wild that he's up to number two. So, you know, Kind of makes my point though, like he's doing something good for the Ottawa Senators, um, and and so Brendan Gallagher puts some some flashlight on that. But I'm guessing Tim Stutzel isn't going to change the way he plays because of it. Just to clarify on the graph here, uh, so I'm taking it from the end as column in the Athletic. Uh, net penalty difference takes penalties drawn, and uh, it's penalties drawn, and then uh, when you account for penalties taken, that subtracts from that number, and then you get your net number. But even in the column that says penalties drawn, Connor McDavid at 46, Tim Stutzla at 39, and then I think you have Pedersen at 26, and then both McKinnon and Kaprizov at 34. So even then, like, I mean, McDavid's still drawing a lot of penalties, and, and so is Timmy Stutzla. But to your point, yeah, like, there is clearly a tactic to this. And I understand that some people think, oh, well, that's not tough to do to, to dive for penalties and whatnot. But considering how referees can get when it comes to calling penalties, I mean, if there's a way for you to get a, get a penalty call and you know your power play is good, there are some guys who are going to lean into it. I don't know if I necessarily like it or not, but it's clear that people do this. It's a tactic. It's something that happens. Anyway, uh, with Timmy Stutzla, uh, we'll see how the reputation will continue to follow him. It seems like there's probably going to be other games where other people are going to look at him and be like, all right, well, you're a diver or maybe you're not a diver. Also, some people were pointing out Brennan Gallagher essentially doing the same thing uh, in that same Ian Mendez column, which you can read at The Athletic. I don't think there's any anything else we want to add with Tim Stutzla. We can, uh, unless there is something you want to add, but I don't think you do. Um we will go to some player retirements that happened earlier this week. Ryan Getzlaff and Marion Hosa 
uh, two guys who uh, played long, long times in the National Hockey League. Getzlaff, Getzlaff says he will retire at the end of the season. Uh, Marion Hosa hasn't played in a couple of years. Uh, a skin condition eczema kind of stopped him from playing, and his contract even ended up in the with the Arizona Coyotes for a while. He signs a one-day contract with Chicago, and uh, he will uh, he'll go down as a, a, a Chicago legend. Three Stanley Cups for a guy who's also played in Atlanta, Ottawa, and uh, he went to the Stanley Cup final with Pittsburgh and Detroit. You remember those years where they ended up playing against each other and Marion Hosa was on the losing side both times. Uh, Ryan Getzlaff getting a Stanley Cup with the Anaheim Ducks pretty early in his career, but a guy who has 120 playoff points in 125 games. Do you, CJ, have any particular moments that stand out with either player? Sure, lots. I mean, just because my careers overlap theirs. You know, Hosa is the one that sticks out to me, actually. I, I covered those Stanley Cup finals in 2008 and 2009. You know, re- to refresh everyone's memory, 2008, he was traded uh, from Atlanta to Pittsburgh at the trade deadline. The, the Penguins go to the Cup final and end up losing to Detroit uh, in that series. And Pittsburgh wanted to keep him. Uh, there, was, there was real chemistry there. I think he played a little bit with Crosby at that time. And he ended up signing a one-year deal in Detroit. He actually turned down, I believe, a 10-year offer at the time from the Edmonton Oilers. Uh, gave up what I think was at a $7 million salary. I think he gave up $70 million guaranteed to sign a one-year deal in Detroit because they had cap problems. They couldn't give him longer term. So he goes to Detroit for the 08-09 season. Lo and behold, he ends up back in the Stanley Cup final with the Red Wings, and they play Pittsburgh and lose in seven games, a really tight seventh game. And so I was covering that, and part of my job on the night of that game seven was to go into the losing locker room of the Red Wings and talk to Marion Hosa. And I can tell you, because he was such a huge story, right? Having switched sides and being on the losing end, both ends. And he was so gracious. And, you know, I, I guess stuff like that, we can argue about whether it matters or not, I, but I think like that's gotta be a crushing moment in his life and said a lot about him as a person, just the way he handled that. Didn't, didn't sort of duck from the conversation, you know, was I just remember what a what a gentleman he was, honestly. And then he goes to Chicago that offseason, signs a long-term deal, the one that's just ended, and wins three cups, including the one in 2010 the next year. So he competed in three straight cup finals like Patrick Maroon, but unlike Maroon, you know, ended up only winning one of those three initially. Um, and and you know, just a kind of subtle superstar in a lot of ways, you know, wasn't wasn't getting the most attention on those Blackhawks teams, but clearly was a huge part of the success they had in the 2010s. And um, you know, kind of cool. It's only the salary cap that sees him, his contract traded to Arizona, but, um, you know, ends up back signing a one day contract with the Blackhawks. I think it makes a whole lot of sense for him and for them and, you know, dynamic career, you know, gets laugh. I think of him more for his team Canada moments, um, than Anaheim moments. It's probably partially the fact I, you know, in the early part of his career, I wasn't really traveling the league. So I didn't, wasn't getting out to Anaheim for the big playoff runs saying 07. Uh, and then, you know, and just he's had so many big team Canada moments playing, winning the world juniors, the, the 2010 Olympics, the 2014 Olympics, uh, the world cup of hockey in 2016. Um, you know, to me, he's a hall of famer. I, I think that's part of the debate you're seeing about him, but to one of the best passers of his era, you know, was on playing for one franchise, I think counts for something. It's really difficult to do. And having the success he did, as you mentioned, almost a point a game over 100 plus playoff games is, is quite something. And then all the winning he did with as a, a big member of those those national teams, um, fantastic career, 
kind of happy to see him do it on his own terms too. Um, you know, by announcing it now and, and getting, you know, three weeks worth of games where everyone knows these are his last set of games. You see it happen in other sports a lot. I can think of baseball, like everyone knew it was Derek Jeter's last year, or Mariano Rivera's last year. They get celebrated as they go through the league a bit. Um, I thought that was a nice touch by Getzlaff to kind of remove any question about that and, and now be properly discussed and feted as he as he plays his last set of games here. The only thing for Getzlaff is that he lets it be known, as you mentioned, about like three weeks before the end of the year. So he doesn't get nearly as long of a retirement tour as he would have if he were Derek Cheater announcing right. it before the end, before the beginning of the season. Right. And I wonder, I guess a lot of hockey players just are undecided, right? That they want to keep playing as long as they can, depending on how their body feels. You know, that's what Patrice Bergeron, for example, said. I mean, he's on the last year of his contract in Boston as we're speaking. And you know, he's having a terrific season. I, I could see him winning the Selkie Trophy actually again, uh, which is insane. But we don't yet know if he'll be back next year. But I think a lot of it is just how he feels after the year. And so it's not like he's keeping a secret from everybody. I just think he's not sure. Um, and so it's it's not common in hockey to have players say, this is this is it, this is it, you know, my last one. I mean, even Wayne Gretzky, when he retired with the Rangers, it was only the last two games. It was apparent that they would be his last two games. The second last game was in Ottawa, and he got a huge ovation there and then there was you know a huge buildup for his last ever game against the penguins at madison square garden um but you know it wasn't like a legend like that even had a long send off in in, in the nhl and so i, I don't think we'll, we'll see too much of this but I, I still think it's nice just a way for him to be honored properly and and you know hopefully to to enjoy this as much as he can and i'm sure it'll be emotional for him i saw he got pretty emotional at the press conference they had this week in anaheim and surprised him with his parents being there and his kids being there and all that stuff but um, you know, really, really a wonderful career. What people might not remember is he was coming back for an injury at the time of the 2010 Vancouver Olympics. Jeff Carter, uh, who's quite famous on this podcast, actually flew into Vancouver as essentially an extra player in case he couldn't. And the last game he played before the Olympics was in Edmonton. And he basically had to show that he was ready. Like Steve Eisman, who's the team's GM at the time, flew in to watch the game. He had like a five-point game or something. Uh, I believe he was recovering from an ankle or foot injury. Uh, and then he obviously ended up playing on the big team. Tough break for Jeff Carter, who didn't actually officially get to play at the Olympics as a result in, in that event. But, um, you know, careers go quick, man. It's crazy to think these guys are, are retiring because, you know, Getzlaff was part of that famous 2003 draft uh, that's that's producing many Hall of Famers, many players that have got to 1,000 career games in the league. And, and there, there's not very many of them left playing. We're, we're down to a handful after after he retires. Yeah, in, in my case with Ryan Getzlaff, because he played out in the West Coast with Anaheim, like that 07 playoff run probably was like the most I was able to really see him play. And then years after that, where the Ducks would go on lengthy playoff runs. But the fact that he was able to get his cup in pretty early on that stacked team with, with him, Corey Perry being there, uh, Scott, both, yeah, Steve Solane, of course, both Niedermeyer brothers being there, like, that was incredible to watch for that Ducks team uh, for them to get the job done. And I mean, the fact that Getzlaff can say that he's played uh, as many games as he's played all of the Anaheim Ducks, also uh, the all-time point leader for that franchise and a franchise that's had Solani, that's had Paul Correa and the Niedermeyers. Like that is, that obviously says something. And yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to side with you. I think the fact that he has that, the Stanley cup success and the international success, I think it makes it pretty easy uh, to make the case for, for Ryan Getzlaff to be a Hall of Fame player. I'm not going to get into first ballot and all that, but I think he's definitely a Hall of Fame player. I agree with you. 
Yeah, and fortunately, we got a few years before, you know, it's a three-year period from when you retire to when you can go in. You know, there's a few other guys I'd like to see get in there. Daniel Alfredson, I think, should be in the Hall of Fame and, and hasn't been elected yet. Um, you know, a few others. Hopefully, they, they they clear out some of that list in the sense of give give the proper due to some other players that actually, if you look at career numbers and things like that, have similar numbers to Ryan Getzlaff. But, you know, I'd be surprised if, if he didn't get there myself. Um, you know, it might take a couple of years. We'll see. But he'll be given his Hall of Fame speech sooner rather than later. I'm curious with regards to Marion Hosa, who I remember watching with the Ottawa Senators and just liking as a player just because of the skill that he had. And when he was with the Thrashers and there was a possibility he could be moved. Do you, is it, I know there was a, there's like a, a story that went around in Montreal around that trade deadline where apparently like a pair of gloves were ordered for the Canadians. And I think they had some kind of, some, some, some kind of like insignia that were supposed to mark that they were his. And La Presse ran with some story saying that uh, there's a chance that the Canadians could be getting Marianosa at the deadline because they had ordered gloves to fit Marianosa. I don't know if that was a thing in other parts of the world where people realized that story was a thing, but it was very much a big deal in my neck of the woods. I don't remember that story, but I know as soon as the Penguins put my buddy Colby Armstrong in the trade for Hosa, that, that there's no way Atlanta was taking any other package. Nope. <laughs> it was a thing. What's funny is it's only recently I realized that it was something that was actually reported on. I just assumed it was urban legend. Canadian fans who watch the show know what I'm talking about, but like I just assumed it was urban legend. And then for some segment I was doing for another podcast, I looked into it and I found the actual story from La Presse from 2008. And I was like, holy crap, like this is, this is pretty wild. So that's part of my memories with, with Marion Hosa on top of the fact that he went to the Stanley cup final with, with Pittsburgh, I think with Pittsburgh and Detroit. And I think with Pittsburgh too, if, if you could refresh my memory too, the way that clinching game ended, Marion Hosa had a chance to score in the dying seconds to, to at least tie the game for Pittsburgh. Like the game was nearly on his stick. He had a chance near the end. He did. He did. That game was played at the Igloo. Um, yep. And I remember that night well. Uh, and he did have a chance to tie that game. And it was a crushing loss for those Penguins. But it's funny. they. I think that they've used that kind of as fuel. I mean, they, you know, Crosby and Malkin and Latang and those guys have all won three cups since. As it turns out, Hosa won three cups after. I mean, it's something we all have to remember. A lot of teams have to lose before they can win. And, uh, you know, they were also going up against what was at the end. Like that was the last vestiges in a lot of ways of the great Detroit teams. I know that they made the playoffs after, obviously they made the cup final the following year and got the game seven. So I guess they could have won one more cup, but um, you know, that was when you still had younger ish Datsuk and Zetterberg, but still had Nick Lidstrom at a crazy level. And, and, you know, it was just the, it's funny how teams go to kind of go through different eras. Um, you know, it was a pretty powerful team that, that, that won the cup that year in 08 and Penguins weren't quite ready. Yeah, they weren't ready. Well, at least Marion Hosa was able to get his three Stanley Cups elsewhere, which I think was a huge reason why, uh, on top of his other statistics as well, the guy who's played like 17 years and he's gotten as many points as he has, the reason why he's in the Hockey Hall of Fame as well. But uh, happy trails to Ryan Getzlaff and Marion Hosa, two guys announcing their retirements uh, this week. Uh, anything on Carey Price, uh, the Montreal Canadiens goaltender who has been out for all of this season. We know he's recovering from knee surgery. He had the setback uh, in the rehab for that. Also, he was in the player assistance program for substance use as well. Uh, he's been skating the last few weeks at practices. He's joining the Canadians uh, in New Jersey 
for their uh, road trip, but uh, not expected to play. And people are already starting to think of, you know, when he'll actually play. I'm just curious. I mean, you might not have the insight on when he might actually play, but I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on the fact that Carey Price might actually still make a return to the ice before the season ends. Well, what stands out to me is he wants to play. You know, there's been so much speculation, and I know he's that the few times he's met the media, there's been questions about his future and, you know, is this maybe it and all that that kind of thing. I mean, obviously, he's been dealing with the injuries in addition to the, the personal issue he had at the start of the year. But I think all along he's maintained a desire to get back and to play games even in this season just to, you know, it's, it's a huge carrot, I think, to, to at least get some game action. It's a long time before next season starts for Carey Price. And, you know, I don't know that there's a lot to be gained other than maybe just the personal satisfaction of doing all the work that you have to do uh, to, to physically, mentally get back to playing. But I would be surprised at this point if we didn't see him play some games here at the end of the season. And, and, you know, it sets up an interesting summer about, you know, will he be back with the Canadians next year? Is this a summer where they look at trading him? I mean, I, I don't have those answers at this point in time, but I, I do think there's, there's a huge sort of personal milestone in front of him, which is, is getting back to, to playing a game this season, not letting the whole year go by because, you know, it's been a very trying and difficult year for him, for the, the Canadians organization. I know they, they seem to have turned a corner here of late in terms of having a better feeling around them since Martin St. Louis has been there and they've you know started winning some games. But, you know, I think it'll be a, a cool moment for, for Carey Price and his family when he, he gets back in and plays a game and, you know, touch wood, you know, I do think we're going to see that here at some point before the end of the regular season. Yeah, I think so too. I think that's the, considering how the rest of the back nine of this uh, Canadian season is gone, that's like the one final story that I think a lot of people are just expecting to have happen in Montreal, just seeing Gary Price come back and look, say what you want about how the team isn't going anywhere. uh, And it's maybe not worth it for him to come back, but considering some of the comments he said in his press conference were, he essentially needs this for his identity. Like it, you, I understand why he would do everything he can to put himself in a position where he could return to the Montreal Canadiens. So there's a part of me that, that hopes that it happens just for his sake. Well, those of us that haven't played in the NHL, I think that we overlook how much it sucks to be injured and you're not really part of the team. You're not traveling. You're not really in the battle. Like, like all the things I think the camaraderie that the players love about you know, playing hockey at that level, you know, you have to do so much work when you're injured. That's sort of like soulless. Like it's almost like a day job. Like you report to the practice facility at 9 a.m. and you got to go through all these treatments and maybe skate on your own and exercises. And, and, you know, again, uh, you know, I don't think it's that much fun. And so you're doing that with the idea of getting back to time when you can play games again. And so, you know, I don't think it matters that those games, at least in this season, won't have anything. They won't really matter in the standings, maybe other than for the draft lottery order, but they're, they're not, games Montreal needs to win, but on a personal level, I can completely understand why he'd want to come back and play and, and prove himself. He can still do it and probably changes the feeling of his whole summer. If he gets to play some games, maybe even has some success, feels that he's made some strides. He's got comfort on his knee and his hip, you know, all that stuff could change, you know, what next season looks like for Carey Price. And so I, I get why he's battling to, to get in there. And there's, there's only a couple of weeks left on the schedule. I mean, it's crazy to think, but a team like Montreal, that's not going to make the playoffs. He does. He's only got a handful of games left to try and do this. And, and you know, obviously that's what he's trying to do. And, and obviously, I mean, we get it. There's the personal aspect to this, which I think is the most important thing. But if you're the Montreal Canadiens and you're able to get some games out of Carey Price, that could also influence whatever plans you may have for him in the offseason as well. He still has that you no know, movement clause. He's still making 10 and a half a year. But 
who knows what he may want with regards to this franchise and the direction that they're going. But also if he's playing at a high enough level, do, do with the Canadians even feel they even need to move on from Carey Price? I think him playing uh, is one isn't just important for him, but it allows the Montreal Canadians to start asking to be able to ask questions about whether or not it's worth keeping him around or trying to find a buyer, which of course would bring its whole set of other, not necessarily complications, but caveats that they'd have to encounter in terms of retention of salary and maybe putting in a prospect or a pick to kind of sweeten whatever deal they make. Well, they got to see what he wants to do too. He has a no movement. That too. So, you know, I don't, I don't think that they know yet. Maybe he doesn't know yet. And so, um, you know, that's, that, that, that's really a conversation. I think that, that goes on in the off season, you know, it's not something that they were contemplating at this deadline too seriously, I don't believe or anything like that. And so, um, you know, I think it, it will be a discussion point as it is with some of their other veteran players, because I know they're not looking to have a, like rip it down to the studs rebuild, but you know, I don't think they're trying to win the Stanley cup next season either. And so, you know, maybe this is the time to, to go their separate ways, but, you know, I think first and foremost, Gary's got to, got to have confidence that he can still play at, at a level and, and he might not truly know that till he gets in games. I mean, it's one thing to be in the practices and doing what he's doing, but you know, he's probably got to see how his body responds to, to playing these games. And so, you know, that's, that's the next hurdle here. And I think on a personal level, there's, there's a nice story to be told when he does get back and play. Absolutely. Um, one other thing with the Canadians before we move on here, there was like a note I saw in 32 thoughts uh, with regards to Martin St. Louis and the fact that he'll evaluate, you know, his situation at the end of the season when it comes to his interim status. I mean, everyone in Montreal seems to think that he's likely done enough to come back as head coach of the Montreal Canadiens. I'm of the opinion that that's what he's doing. Plus he said, he's not here to be a substitute teacher. I'm just curious about what you may have heard about Marte St. Louis at this point. Well, sort of like the price discussion It's just, it's not something I think they're really going to get down to business to until you get into May until the the dust settles on the year. I mean, there's still a, a question yeah, he might not be here to be the substitute teacher, but he's he's got to look at his own life and he's got young kids and, and, you know, I think evaluate how this could work for him. You know, I would be surprised at this stage if if the organization didn't show an interest in bringing him back. And, and you, know, I, you know, I think it's pretty clear Ken Hughes feels that, that that's something that should happen. But, you know, Martin Saint-Louis, he's unique among, you know, a lot of head coaches. He, you know, he had a long playing career. He made a lot of money. So I don't think this is so much a financial decision as just a lifestyle family one. If, if he wants to live this job, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a full-time job, capital F capital T to be an NHL head coach. And so, you know, you have to be sure you're committed to doing it. It, it came together very quickly for him. Um, you know, when he came in this season, I think he was coming in to do a different job initially in, in the Canadians organization. They get blown out in a game and all of a sudden he finds himself as an intern basis coaching the team. And so, my guess is he hasn't, his feet probably haven't barely touched the ground since that point, um, just with how busy the schedule is and everything that's gone on. And so, you know, I, I, I'm not going to guess either way whether he'll be back. I, I think it's probably more likely than not if we're setting odds on it. But, you know, so much of it's going to come down to what Martin and his family think is best, uh, you know, when it gets to the offseason. Okay, so that's it with the Canadians. And before we get to stick taps, uh, I did mention Austin Matthews and the fact that he's still chasing that single season goal record for the Leafs trying to bypass Rick Vive. I did mention the Florida Panthers game going the way that it did. Jonathan Huberto had the game that he did. Uh, I don't have the Leafs schedule in front of me. 
But is it possible, CJ, that uh, by the time a lot of people listen to this podcast, whether it's just Thursday evening into Friday, Austin Matthews will find himself making history? I think so. I mean, the Leafs play Thursday night in Dallas uh, or played Thursday night in Dallas, depending on when you're listening to this. And see, seeing him go multiple games without scoring, it, it hasn't happened too much this year. He had a ton of chances to break that record in Florida on Tuesday. Didn't manage to do so. I think he had 13 shot attempts in the game. But, um, you know, it, it, it it's uh, I mean, it's a foregone conclusion at this point, more or less, that he's going to get that record. He probably would have had it one of the last two seasons you know, had COVID allowed those to be 82 game seasons rather than the shortened version that they ended up being. And, and if you look across those three seasons for Austin, he's scoring at something like a 68 goal pace. Um, so, you know, not only is he going to set the record for the Leafs this year, I would think that 60 is, is rather in danger as well. And, you know, it's just a special, special year for him. Um, I think he's kind of on a mission with it. If, if you look at the last stretch of games he's played, he's, been, been pretty consistent in, in putting the puck in the net. I think his teammates know what's at stake. And, you know, he's the best goal scorer in the organization's history already. I don't think there's any question about that. It just just from the moment he entered the league with four goals, he's consistently been above half a goal a game. And, and that's really difficult to do. That's elite territory, especially in the areas he's played. And, you know, this year we've seen a bump in, in offense league-wide, which has been great. And, and it's allowed players like him to have 60 goals and 100 points in, in reach. You know, Jonathan Huberto just became the first Florida Panthers player to top 100 points. Um, you know, we're going to see some special milestones fall or be hit that, that aren't hit every year. And, and I think it's been it's been pretty damn exciting this this season. And, you know, Austin's been at the, the center of that excitement here of late with with how much he's been putting the puck in the net. Absolutely. And uh, on another episode, but we'll, we'll, on other episodes leading up to the end of the year, we'll continue to check in with the Hart Trophy race and some of the other significant awards in the NHL season. And uh, you can always go back to our previous episode where we made our gripes about uh, uh, the MVP honor. I wonder if, uh, well, Pierre Lebrun apparently shares the same opinion that we have. I don't know if you read his latest in The Athletic, but uh, he argued for the idea that uh, maybe it should be most outstanding player, not necessarily MVP. But uh, Wayne Gretzky, who he spoke to, that's a flex, uh, disagreed. Well, I'll defer to Wayne Gretzky on these matters more than Pierre. I guess that's fair. He is the great one for a reason. And with that, uh, we've cleared through most of the topics, but we still have stick taps to do, which we normally do on our Thursday edition of the Chris Johnston show. Normally, uh, CJ and I have uh, our own individual choices for stick taps. This one's going to be a little bit different. Uh, This week, four years ago, the unfortunate... Humboldt tragedy involving the Humboldt Broncos, uh, the bus crash took place. Uh, it is still something that affects the community to this day. It is something that still resonates with the hockey community to this day. Uh, and I wanted to just kind of look back at that because the unfortunate bus crash that left, uh, I mean, it's one thing to look at the victims, 10 players, two coaches, a statistician, a broadcaster, the bus driver, an athletic therapist, uh, and other, other people in the crash receiving uh, just being significantly injured. But this also resonates with their families and their loved ones as well. And it, it's, it's something that in the moment was very tragic to hear about and follow. But it was nice to see the support from the hockey community around that. So CJ, I'd like to know what you remember from 
that tragedy four years ago and just seeing the outpouring wave of support since. Well, it's no less tragic today. You know, that's my view is so many lives lost. You know, we're, we're talking about young men and women uh, and, and, you know, they're on the way to a playoff game. Just, you know, it's not like weather was a factor, just, just a really sad, sad story. Um, and, you know, I've been fortunate to spend some time around the survivors of the humble crash, Tyler Smith, Nick Shemlansky, Caleb Dahlgren, um, you know, got to know those guys in a small way. Uh, and, you know, I give them credit. They've been, you know, open about kind of what they've had to deal with. I, I have to believe that's an ongoing process, probably a lifelong process for, for anyone who survived that, that, that incident and lost so many friends at the same time. And, you know, it really, I think it resonated around the world, honestly, uh, in terms of if you saw the GoFundMe and, 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 you know, things that happened right initially after the crash, you still saw this week, some people putting out sticks out for Humboldt was, was, I thought at the time, a nice gesture. I mean, the truth is when, when something like this happens, there's nothing you can really do. You try to wrap your arms around the survivors and, and the families of, of those that were killed that day. But, um, you know, it's just, just a really difficult, sad thing. I, I still can't really process the, the depth of it. Um, but, you know, I, I think that they, the, the survivors have done a really nice memory of keeping on the, and the, and the families of, of keeping on the memories of those that were lost. And, um, you know, I know my buddy Tyler Smith's got a, a company called Not Alone. I've worn his, I've actually worn a sweatshirt on here. I should have worn it today. I didn't, didn't think of connecting the two. Um, but yeah, I just, I, my, my heart goes out to them. I hope everyone continues to seek the help they need. And, uh, um, yeah, just, it's one of those things I don't think you'll ever really make sense of just, just a true tragic accident and, and, um, you know, a difficult thing for that community and a lot of people's lives changed in that one moment. I also, uh, my thing with, with that whole event, I remember watching their first game that was broadcast on TSN and and yeah. seeing James Duthie and the rest of the broadcast crew, not only cover that game, but have no commercials. And it was just features, interviews, games, just nothing but that for, I forget how many hours they went on consecutively and that was still one of the best produced television events I've ever seen on Canadian sports television, but just incredible. Just shout out to them for, for TSN for being able to pull that off and being able to tell all those stories and show the game. I think Chris Cuthbert might have called that game as well. That's still one of the more remarkable things I've ever seen. And to see a, a community just try to build itself up, build itself back up after suffering through something like this, it's not easy to do. I can imagine. I can only imagine what that is like. And my thoughts are for everyone still recovering from that day and still trying to push through everything that happened. It's not easy to go through something like this. Again, I can only imagine. But I, I couldn't help but think of 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 Humboldt and Humboldt Strong and the tragedy and everything that's come from that uh, from this week. So I'm I'm glad that we were able to acknowledge it on stick taps on the CJ show, a bit of a let's sad way to the, end. Let's hope the memories Go become ahead. warm ones, you know, that over too. time. That's what you hope. Like you it, clearly, this is not something that's been forgotten, nor should it be of course, but hopefully over time, you know, whatever memories people have from the survivors, from the families of those that died, you know, that you can think warmly of it and realize that there's still a lot of people out there that, that are moved by this and that are, 
you know, shaken by it. So yeah, I'm with you. It was, it's, it's a massive event in Canadian history, honestly. And, and obviously for all the wrong reasons, but um, we're all humble and strong, my friend. Yes, we are. Again, a bit of a sad way to end the podcast, but uh, I felt it was very necessary for us to look back. And with that, that brings an end to the Chris Johnston show for this Thursday. We'll be back on Monday. If you have questions for us for Ask CJ, uh, you can ask on Twitter. You can ask on Discord as well. Uh, Also, just subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and check out all the other great content uh, that is available on the SDPN network. Uh, For CJ, I'm Julian Singh. So long and humble strong. The Chris Johnston Show. Inside the game, twice a week. Follow Chris on Twitter, at Reporter Chris. And follow Julian McKenzie, at JK McKenzie.